Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. We're grateful you're here this morning. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 34. We're going to be talking about David's remedy for fear. Fear is not really something you want to talk about early in a new year. This this year is largely unsullied. (laughs) Maybe you haven't had too many bad things happen yet. But in a new year, we like to look forward with confidence and joy. And yet I find in my own life, uh, there is so much fear and so many troubles. Sometimes I have a hard time getting to the positive things. And I've been impacted by the life of David. I've been reading in my own Bible reading in First and Second Samuel for some time. I've been so impacted with the life of David and the heart that he had. It kept coming back to a, a plumb line, back to his Lord. And I ran across this psalm and it, it caught my attention. We're going to talk about David's remedy for fear. We're really going to go beyond that. It's David's remedy for fear and for troubles for difficulty. And I found it so helpful just in meditating on this. I hope you will as well. Do you struggle with fear? Maybe the question should be, do you recognize that you struggle with fear? All of us, if we're honest, uh, to be human is to be able to fear in a lot of ways. There's uh, childhood fears. You think of the dark. We have some children's books at home that talk about, and it was dark, and you're supposed to get scared. Uh, I think of the childhood fear of desertion by your parents, unintentional, hopefully. You're in a store and you get left behind, Uh, fear of bugs. I think of my own childhood fears. One was being alone at night. I, I grew up on a dairy farm, and my brother used to tell me, Stories of ghosts that would come out of this certain pole after a certain hour of dark. And when you're feeding the calves milk afterwards, when dad's already gone in from milking the cows, there would be a ghost coming to that pole and chase you to the house. And it was about 100 yards, maybe 150 yards. And I believed him. But then I believed him when he told me after a thunderstorm and the sun would come out and drop the puddles, he said, you see those cracks where the mud would would curl like that. He said, those cracks will eventually become earthquakes. <laughs> the trials of a little brother. Childhood fears like being alone at night or like heights. I remember the story, uh, I don't tell it often, but I grew up near Arnold, Nebraska. And there's a place up there, it's, it's a canyon. If you've been in Arnold, Nebraska, it's like, it's like many mountains right behind the, uh, the town. It's uh, the start of the sand hills. It's very high, probably a 300-foot change in elevation behind the city or town. It looks really cool. You go up there, and there was some poor practices of farming uh, back in the early days, and there was this huge washout that began. It created a place called Devil's Den. And I remember my teacher taking us on a trip up to Devil's Den. I was probably a kindergartner, so we're talking six years old back in the day. And we had to walk down this slow uh, decline 
to go into the mouth of this huge, I mean, very big washout and combination canyon. And then we had to climb up a face that, man, I, it must have been like this, but I thought it was like that as a kid. I was scared to death going up that thing as a six-year-old. I was sure I was going to tumble over backwards and fall to my death. Heights or climbing in Devil's Den was a fear of mine. Bad weather was another one. I won't go into all my childhood fears, but childhood fears are common. And then you get into adulthood, and it's not so funny anymore. Uh, different fears that people have. Sometimes they're phobias. The National Institute of Mental Health says as many as 13 out of every 100 Americans struggle with a phobia, which is essentially something that's very real, it's very intense, but it's irrational. There's really little danger involved. So maybe things like uh, the fear of closed spaces, claustrophobia. Maybe some of you have experienced that. I, I didn't think I really had that until I started uh, spelunking a little bit <laughs> and going back into caves. And I remember little places you would climb through in places where I grew up, not official caves at all, but yeah, you can get uh, pretty fearful of closed spaces. Arachnophobia, anybody afraid of spiders? Here's one I, I learned about uh, just the last couple of days, aviophobia, the fear of flying, or as some have termed it, it's really the fear of falling, not the fear of flying. One of the most common, anywhere from three to 7% of the population suffer from the fear of flying. Phobias often will stem from a perceived loss of control. I, I think that probably overstates our case and how much control we really have to begin with. But we think we control a lot and we really don't control much. But if we perceive that we've lost control, it creates fear in many cases. Sometimes there's fears of perception. Maybe you, you will fear being perceived as inadequate or a failure, or he didn't really make much of himself. Fear uh, based on circumstances, maybe with one's vocation. I lost a job when my wife was pregnant with our youngest, uh, back when I was in my 40s. Uh, it led to fear. Maybe it's fear in regard to finances. There's all kinds of fears. But you, you start boiling it down to some that we don't readily admit. Maybe fear of the unknown. Fear of the future, fear of economic or political conditions changing or deteriorating. Don't, don't immediately go to 21st century America. David struggled with some of these things. We're going to see it in Psalm 34. Political changes and conditions that he had no control over. What about fear of sickness? That's a big one right now, isn't it? Fear of disease. So what, what can I do to mitigate this risk? We become fear and sometimes it becomes irrational as if we control everything. There's fear of the unknown. There's common fears. And maybe one of the most difficult is fear or relational fears. Relational fears. I mentioned separation when you're a kid. What about separation when you're an adult? I don't have to go further to say that's very painful, whether it's by divorce or by death or by estrangement of a family member. That is, that is difficult. What about humiliation in your relationships? What about indifference? That is, it doesn't really matter. You don't really matter to me. Just go away. 
being thought of as, as nothing? What about rejection in relationships? What about opposition? Somebody who just right to your face opposes you. Or, or worse, what about betrayal? There's all kinds of fears. And I think this chapter is going to show us from David's heart and by the Spirit of God, David's remedy for fear. It's really God's remedy for fear that, that David discovered. David was no stranger to many of these same fears. And this takes us to our, our text, which has been read in part this morning. But are you aware of the context of Psalm 34? Look at the very top of most of your Bibles. We'll have underneath the editor's comments of what it's about generally, which I usually ignore. There's a little thing, a little... Uh, subscript that says a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. Do you remember the circumstances of David before the king of the Philistines? It, it starts well, but that's about all I can say for it. It's back in 1 Samuel 18 to 21. We don't have time to turn there. We'll just give a brief background. This, this starts at a very high point. David has just killed the Philistine champion. And he subsequently rises to fame. You know the story. It's well known. David has killed his tens of thousands and Saul his thousands. I guess they turned it around and it kind of crescendos to the great one. And therein sows some of the seeds of pain and conflict and fears and difficulties in David's life. David ends up marrying into Saul's family in spite of Saul's jealousy and paranoid suspicion. And you recall the story that Saul says, I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. I'm going to get rid of David and I'm going to hurt my enemies. Go get the foreskins of a hundred Philistines and then I'll let you marry my daughter. And David doesn't even flinch. The Lord prospers and he comes back with these enemies of the Lord, these parts of their bodies in a gross way and puts them before Saul. And Saul can't do anything but give him his daughter in marriage. And thus begins a painful chapter in David's life. For now his father-in-law actively seeks to kill him. It didn't take long, did it? To go from doing it a roundabout way through the Philistines to taking a spear and just losing it and throwing it at him. You remember these stories. Jonathan and David, we think of that as a really happy story, but think of the pain of separation. They loved and appreciated each other so much as friends, and yet they couldn't even be together without Saul entering in and wanting to kill one or even the other, his own son. So David is forced to flee for his life, and he has to seek basic provision, food and weapons. He does so through Ahimelech the priest down in the town of Nob and you remember the betrayal that happens there? The betrayal, do you realize that the betrayal happened by one of David's distant relatives? Doeg was an Edomite. You have to go way back to the time of Jacob and Esau. But Esau becomes Edom, the nation of Edom, and they hate their brothers, their cousins across the way, across the sea, the Dead Sea. And Doeg there betrays David. He betrays the priests and Saul in his rage says to the soldiers, kill the priests, they won't lift a finger against them. And Doeg and his minions do it. It's, it's a nasty story. 
In desperation, David flees to the enemy. Gath? Of all places? You know whose hometown this was, right? Goliath of Gath? It's that place. He flees there for safety? How bad does it have to get in your life when you go right into the heart of the enemy's people? It doesn't end there. He's positively identified by his arch enemies, the Philistines. They said, isn't this the one that they say? David has killed his tens thousands. We have him right here. And he, he feigns madness. And the king says, get rid of him. I'm not short of madmen. And he has to escape. And he flees yet again. This is the context of Psalm 34. This is the context of Psalm 34. David's quick to acknowledge his many fears. Look at your text. Look at verse 4, 34.4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. How many fears do you suppose he had after going through a list like that? It's carnage in his nation, in his family, in his life, with his enemies. He acknowledges as many fears, but it's pretty clear from the text that David has been facing more than fear. Many of his fears had become reality. Look at verse 6. This poor man, or this afflicted man, cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Look at verse 17. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many of David's fears had become reality. And at first blush, verses like this, in such a context, might seem like some kind of a ominous, self-reinforcing, closed loop. Or it kind of goes like this. You fear that some bad things are going to happen. I, I, just, I just feel it. I just know it. I, I usually am right. My intuition, I just... And you fret and you fret. And then some bad things do happen. And you view your fear, therefore, as justified. I knew it. I knew it. I felt that was going to happen. And so you fear even more bad things happening and around the cycle goes again. But is this the way we're supposed to live? Is this how God intended us to live? I think David responds in Psalm 34 with an emphatic, no, no, this is not what he intended for us to be. Let's read each of these verses I just read again about the fears and the troubles and the afflictions. Let me read them again. And let me read them with the emphasis that they really carry. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from my fears. Verse 6. This afflicted man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. 
verse 17, the righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers him out of all their troubles. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, granted, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. It doesn't mean they didn't happen, but deliverance is at hand. This is a psalm of deliverance and salvation. If you look at verse 22, it basically says this is a psalm of redemption. There's a technical name for that. I don't remember what it is, but psalms of redemption have a specific name. It says in the last verse, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of them who take refuge in him will be condemned. David has a remedy for fear. So what is it? What is it? We're going to give three points from the text this morning. The first one is David seeks the Lord. Look at Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Down in verse 10, it's as if there's an echo. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. To seek the Lord. The word means to inquire, to to ask, to look to, to resort to. And beautifully, Psalm 119, which I understand a number of you were in this class in Psalm 119 this morning. I encourage that. We also have a great class this hour, if any of you are inclined, on enhancing your Bible study, also in the NPR during the second hour. But we'll talk more about that later. Psalm 119 helps clarify what it means to seek the Lord. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 2. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. Psalm 119, verse 10 says, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Did you catch the two descriptors? There's two key descriptors in those verses out of Psalm 119 describing what it means to seek the Lord. The first one is seeking the Lord means looking to him with a whole heart. With a whole heart. Half-hearted looking to God doesn't cut it. That's not what David is talking about. He's talking about all of my heart, giving to seeking, inquiring, asking, resorting to the Lord. He is my strength. He is my salvation. I will look to him. I will seek him. That's the first qualifier or descriptor. There's a second one. You see what it was? Let me read those verses again. This is Psalm 119.2. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. Verse 10, with all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Seeking the Lord means unqualified submission to his word. You don't hold it back and say, well, if I like it, I might do it. If it makes sense to me, if it fits my context, if it, if it can overcome my fears, I, I, I'll consider it. This is a wholehearted devotion. I think of, I think of James writing to the early church in James 1, 5 through 8. He says, you want to find no answer to your prayer? You want to find no wisdom given to your heart? Then doubt God. I'm reversing what he actually says. He says, let him ask without any doubting. For anyone who doubts is like a 
a, a, a reed in the sea, or how does it say, a reed in the wind blowing here and there. There's no stability whatsoever. That's not David in Psalm 34. He wants us to seek you with a whole heart, and he wants us to give unqualified submission to his word. You know, Psalm 119 does the exact opposite as well. It gives us a contrast. Psalm 119, 155, way toward the end of the chapter. Listen to this. It's the opposite of seeking the Lord. Salvation is far from the wicked. That is, deliverance is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. 1 Samuel 28 gives an example that's also in contrast about seeking something. This is what Saul said to his servants. Seek for me a woman who is a medium that I may go and seek her, inquire of her. It's the same word, same word as what David uses. And the servant said to him, hey, here's a woman whom you can seek, a medium at Endor. I don't have to tell you that doesn't end well. The Lord wants us to seek him with a whole heart. He wants us to seek him with unqualified submission to his word. But this is not all. Go to verse 6. David cries to the Lord, This poor man, this man under distress cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And there's an echo on these two. There's actually a couple of them. Look down in verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The righteous cry to the Lord and he delivers them. Look at verse 17 again. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. To cry to the Lord. David uses different words in each of those three verses I just read. Words that seem to create kind of a crescendo in meaning. Maybe a crescendo in emphasis. Maybe urgency. The first one in verse 6 means to call or to summon. It's just like, hey, you, we're in here. But it goes on in verse 15. It says it's a cry for help. It's like, hey, please help me now. It's, it's another level of cry. And verse 17 is to cry out in distress. Is anybody there? I need help. Urgency. Seeking the Lord and crying to the Lord. I think of Psalm 34, 7 here, where it says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues him, or rescues them. I don't really rightly know if this goes with this point or the next one. You can make a case for both. I'm going to stick it here. Yet salvation and rescue seem to be the consistent role of the Lord and this angel that's referred to. I recognize it says, the Lord encamps around those who fear him, which is point three we're going to get to in a minute. But it says, the angel of the Lord is attentive to the cry. Let me take you back. I'm just going to do it. You don't have to turn here. Uh, who was the first person who ever saw the angel of the Lord that David references? Do you know? Who's the first person that we know of ever recorded who ever saw the angel of the Lord? You might be surprised. Is somebody really obscure in biblical history? It was Hagar. It was Hagar, the angel of the Lord, the Bible says, appeared to her. Genesis 16, you can look it up. The first appearance, it's beautiful. He appears not to the great patriarch Abraham, not to the one from whom God's entire redemptive plan for mankind would spring, but to an obscure slave girl. 
What does this tell you about the angel of the Lord? How caring, how sensitive is he? It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. In fact, I'm going to read just a bit of it to you. Uh, This is in, if you want to write it down, Genesis 16. The whole story is worth recounting. But we're just going to touch on a couple things here. Now the angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? Like he doesn't know. And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Do you know what that literally says? God hears. God hears. She had been crying out with whatever level of urgency that we talked about. David uses three different levels, almost increasing in the stair step. She cries out, and the Lord hears her cry. Beautiful story. Well, Abraham is the second person recorded in Scripture to have had God reveal himself through the, uh, to the, through the angel of the Lord. Uh, let's go, everybody turn to Genesis 22, if you would. I want you to go to this one. This one's beautiful as well. Genesis 22. And please follow along. I'm going to read verses 8 to 12. Genesis 22, 8 to 12. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. He's talking to Isaac. You know that. So the two of them walked on together, and they came to the place in which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar and arranged the wood and bound his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. This is a beautiful segue from David's first two principles of seeking the Lord and crying out to the Lord. And now David fears the Lord as God commands Abraham for in Genesis 22. So we go back to our text. Psalm 34, 6 and 7. I'll read it again. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. So he who fears the Lord, look at verse 9. David moves from saying, this is what happened in my heart, to instruction here. He says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. He's so confident of this This fear of God and what it can accomplish. When you turn your fear away from your fears and your troubles and you turn it to him, that this will make all the difference in your perspective, even though the circumstances may not change. Look at the echo of verse 9. 
It's uh, down in verse 11. Come, you children. Still in instructive mode, as it were, David writing the song. Listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I love this. I know it's often repeated that the fear of the Lord is simply reverence and respect. You've heard that. I know you've heard that in Sunday school. I've taught that at different times. Reverence and respect might be a start, and I think it is. But it seems the biblical concept has really fallen victim to the general irreverence of our society and our culture. The irreverence, something I, this is my term, language inflation. We call everything awesome, great. And, and those terms don't really apply when we apply it to food or a game or a team. The Hebrew lexicon I used says the word here for fearing the Lord means to wait for it, to fear. But listen, it, it crescendos. To revere, to be afraid of, to stand in awe of. Now you may admit to some fears, but not many of us will admit we're afraid of certain things, will we? I got this. I got this. You already know I've said before, I don't like that sign. I don't have much of anything apart from his mercy and grace. To fear, to revere, to be afraid of, to stand in awe of, it's hard to think of anything that any of us hold with that kind of awe. Can you think of something? Where you're actually afraid, you're in awe, you stand back and you're pretty well speechless. David says the Lord should be one who gets that kind of reverence and respect, that kind of fear and awe. Maybe the writer of Hebrews touches on it when he says, in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is at the end of his book, the end of his writing. He's gone through all these things about Christ and the amazing sacrifice, the better sacrifice, the, the worthy and whole sacrifice he gave that perfectly satisfied God. And he says, at the end of this, we better approach God with reverence and awe. I think it's akin to what David writes here. Fear the Lord, you his saints. Fear him. Because with those who fear him, there is no want. Even in the midst of your fears, even in the midst of your trials, from which you will note David wasn't delivered. You remember David's, if we go on in 1 Samuel 28 to 31, did you follow the story through? Was he delivered from all this stuff? I mean, did it just happen like that? It didn't. He had to hide in caves and holes in the ground and cities who ended up turning him over or would have turned him over, the Lord said. And he escaped and had to go around the mountain and Saul's trying to capture him. This was not a happy existence. But David still writes this psalm. I am shamed. Turn for a moment over to Psalm 56, would you? Psalm 56. I don't remember if I referenced this to this group or in the earlier message. Psalm 56, 
there's a little subscript at the start of that psalm too, and it speaks. Uh, it was written at about the same time as Psalm 34. However, the the Psalters arranged this is another matter. But Psalm 56 says at the top in the in the subscript, it says this was written when the Philistines seized David in Gath. Now that's something the story doesn't even tell us. It just says he feigned. He feigned insanity and he scribbled on the wall and he lets his saliva running down into his beard. And they say, Abimelech says, I don't need more madmen. Get rid of him. But they seized him. They have him. I can't imagine the fear being in the hands of your arch enemy. (laughs) So this psalm is written at the same time. Here's the point. Look what he says in verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid... It's the same word as the word for fearing God, this reverence and awe that that stops you. It really stops you and you shut up and you are overtaken by what is before you. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God whose word I pray, praise, echoes of themes from Psalm 34. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid or fearful or awestruck at anything else. For God has taken that and I've applied it to him. This really flips the script on my own fears. You know what I mean? It flips the script. It's like the biblical remedy to the many fears that can so readily dominate my life and your life is to fear the Lord instead. That's what it's saying to do. There's lots of fear out there right now, of all sorts. You name it. In some area of your life or our country or our nation, there's lots of fear out there. Can I say it again? The psalmist would have us flip the script And David's remedy to the many fears that can so dominate my life is to fear the Lord instead. How much do I really control after all? Can I even take another breath apart from his mercy? Can I defend myself against something I can't even see? I'm not talking precautions and care. I'm not talking... We allow fear to dominate our lives. I know it's true. I've seen it. I've lived it. It's not right. David would challenge us. Back to Psalm 34. David would challenge us. He says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want in that context. It's beautiful. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, children. Come listen to me. David, a man with experience of many fears and many trials. Well, Psalm 34, 9, it says, Fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. Man, that's saying a lot. No want? There's no want? Not in want of any good thing, God says through David, that those who seek the Lord and fear the Lord will have no lack of capacity to deal with all manner of fears and troubles. You catch that? That's what David's saying. God says through David that those who seek him and those who fear him will have no lack of capacity to deal with all manner of fears and troubles that come their way, even if they remain in your life as they did for David. His confidence 
is in the Lord. So what's the result of all this in David's heart? If you read the psalm all at one sitting, we read only 10 verses earlier, you read the whole psalm and you let the emphases come out, Look, it's, it's really, he starts his psalm this way. He doesn't start saying, oh man, have I got something to tell you. Listen to all these things that have happened to me. I do that. It's like, oh, my day was horrible. I had this and I had this and then it interrupted this. And my phone wouldn't work. And you go on, can't we just list these troubles and fears and complaints? Look what David does. As he meditates on the sufficiency of the Lord his God, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I've written that verse to my wife in cards and stuff like this. I guess, oh, it's so cool. We're doing this together. We're serving the Lord together and totally missed the context. This is in 1 Samuel 18 to 22 and following. This is a painful time of his life, and David's going, bless the Lord, boast in the Lord, magnify the Lord with me, let's exalt his name together. The focus is him, not my fears. The focus is him, not my troubles. The focus is him, not the troubles I'm still in that haven't yet been taken away. Amen. So a few application questions. These are ones I'm asking to myself. Is the Lord my go-to? Is he my first resort when confronted with fear? Fear is this broad. There isn't an area of life that you can't develop a fear in, a phobia. Maybe it's irrational. Maybe it's not. Maybe it seems to have sound reason behind it. Is the Lord my go-to? The first place I go? when confronted with fears? Do I respond with unqualified submission to what God says about my fears and my troubles? Have you ever been involved in a conversation and, and somebody's going on and on and on about their fears? I think I've done this to other people. I've, I've, we notice it more when it's others doing it to us, right? So we don't notice it so much when we're the complainers. It's true with me. Maybe it's true with you too. And, and you say, well, well, have you talked to the Lord about that? Have you taken this to the Lord? Oh, yeah, well, I, I know that verse, and it didn't apply, and they go on. It's just like, we're like that with God's word to our own detriment. God's word is enough. Do I respond with unqualified submission to what he says about my fears and my troubles? When the heat is on, do I cry in faith? When the heat is on, do I cry in faith to the one who is able to deliver? even if I don't get an answer right away. Maybe I have to cry my whole life. You ever heard the story of people who don't see the answers to their prayers and God does something miraculous after they're gone? Do I cry in faith, not in sight, to the one who is able to deliver? A couple more and then we'll be done. Am I willing to turn my fear away from circumstances and to the only one who is worthy of reverence and awe? Am I willing to turn my fear away from circumstances? And I mean even the really painful ones. There's painful ones right here. I know. 
I see them, I hear them, I feel them many times. To the only one who is worthy of my reverence and awe, we give fear to circumstances and fear to troubles. It's misguided. And finally, following David's example, am I ready to bless the Lord and boast in the Lord and encourage others to praise the Lord in place of my fears and in place of my troubling circumstances? David's not out of the woods when he writes this. His focus is in the right place. It's very instructive to us. I hope that your heart will be encouraged to hear again the psalmist as he writes in the midst of things that we can very much identify with. May we also identify with him in redirecting our fear to the one who alone deserves it. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the beauty of your word. Thank you for the sovereignty under which you placed David in difficult circumstances. You allowed things that really rival just about any experience we have. And Lord, we don't belittle our our current circumstances. There are suffering people all around us. But Father, truly, this psalm, we didn't even get to it, but it speaks at the end even of Jesus Christ. And we know that he was the righteous one, and yet he was forsaken by you because of our sin. I just, we just thank you for that sacrifice. We look to him in faith. May we recognize him as the one who pens these words by his Holy Spirit through David. And may we learn to follow you in 2022, though the fears are not going to go away. The circumstances are not going to leave until you say it's time. The troubles we experience are very real. So, Father, help us to redirect our fear. May we have an awe and an appreciation and a worship of you and a devotion to you and your word that surpasses anything heritage has seen before. Would you grow us through the trials that we're facing? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.